everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am your host today, TJ Van Toll, and with me today on our panel, I have Jack Harrington. Hello. And Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everyone. And our special guest today is Chris Bruin. Chris, how's it going? Welcome to React Roundup. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah. So Chris, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, why you're famous, all that good sort of stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Famous uh, might be questionable. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, so I'm, I'm currently a, a full stack software engineer at a, a startup called InClub. And it's based around uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Mm. And we're, I guess, we're, we're trying to be, you, if you could imagine, kind of an Airbnb, but for experiences. So I'm going hiking this weekend. Who wants to come with me? Or, I mean, going on a pub crawl. Who wants to come with me? And so, yeah, I've, I've been there now just over a year. Yeah, from everything from, from backend, mobile app, CMS, everything in between. So I've seen a little bit of everything. Awesome. Nice. So I, I know we reached out because you've written a couple of really interesting articles about your thoughts, like on think all sorts of things from like code structure to testing to how uh, uh, BDD, like behavior, behavior driven development. <laughs> so maybe do you want to start by just giving like an overview of some of like, maybe we could start with like BDD and like how you came to like how you structure code and how you approach problems at the startup? Because I not a whole lot of us get the the chance to really like greenfield build something like that at scale. So I'm curious, like some of your thoughts and opinions you have to share around that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. So the the challenge for us was that we we were a very small team. So up until a few weeks ago, I was kind of the the only developer. So it was me and the the two co-founders. So as you said, yeah, super greenfield. And we actually, we were guided, one of our technical advisors told us about this kind of behavior-driven development thing. So we're like, okay, well, what is this? And so he, he pointed us, I guess, at the very top of this whole like behavior-driven development and test-driven development stuff is this language called Gherkin. And so Gherkin is simply, you could consider it like a programming language, but it's also kind of, yeah, behavior and kind of product design language. So basically the only, the, the three important keywords are given, when, and then. And for us developers, that kind of corresponds one-to-one -to, -one to the whole, the act, uh, arrange, assert trio. So the reason he, the reason he pointed us in this direction is that 
the two co-founders, they're kind of the, the minds behind the product and, and driving a lot of the ideas behind the product. They can describe in plain English or with these three sentences, right? Given, let's say, given I open the app, when I press the login button, then I see the login screen, right? Something like that. They can explain steps in very plain English. And then we, or I, I guess it's we now, there's, there's two of us now. That's awesome. <laughs> we can write the tests against these kind of, yeah, these, we call them Gherkin spe- specifications. Mm-hmm. So. Very cool. And it's spelled just for anybody else curious, G-H-E-R-K-I-N, just for anybody just <laughs> casually Googling this as we go across, because I would not have guessed that's <laughs> spelling at all. Yeah, I, so I believe. Does this integrate with Jest or how do I, if, I'm, if I just want to start with this, where, where do I start with this? Yeah, so there's, there's two, kind of two ways. The one way is you can use a library called Cucumber, which they have actually drivers for a lot of languages, I think also plain Java, JavaScript, Kotlin, other languages. So you can use that and they you basically directly import uh, like a function called given and then you pass the string of whatever the given line of, of that description file is. But yeah, we've we have since integrated with Jest. There's also there's an int- integration. You basically so when you write these um these specification files, we we're using the dot feature file extension. That seems to be like kind of a, a standard. And this Jest integration works that you you import. They have like it's called like a load feature uh, function, and then Jest knows, ah, okay, I'm reading from this feature file, and then you have define feature with more more in I guess a standard Jest way but still with these you get these little given when then functions that you can you can call from just in in the order of the steps oh nice so. yeah i found that it's just desk dash cucumber on github and you're right it like it looks to me like any other just <laughs> all these these nouns it's kind of <laughs> sometimes you take a step <laughs> back and go like these sentences i'm saying are a little crazy but it it looks like any other Jest test that <laughs> I've seen before, but you're right. It, it clearly has the the given when then type of structure, well, just sort of embedded within it. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting that you've been able to incorporate that into a testing framework because at the last company that I worked with, our product managers were responsible for writing a lot of our feature stories, and they would use that sort of syntax to write out the story. So exactly like you would say given a user clicks on a button when they or given a user is on our application when they click on the input button then i should open up the input or the login screen but we would then translate that into our own tests where it would be like test or it should xyz so that's really cool that you can just take it directly from the user's story or the user input and make that part of the test because it's like if you don't meet that criteria exactly you know there's something wrong with the code not the or or how it was defined maybe but that's really cool that you could have that one-to-one comparison yeah i mean i i think there's there's huge advantages i mean what what you just described is is amazing right like the basically the the product development team or the product management team can kind of have a one-to-one bridge right to the engineers and what what we also found now that we have we have this new developer on you basically have your whole infrastructure more or less you can say hey like or if you know if they they're asking about what does this feature do or how does it work you say hey don't read the test read the yeah. test second but first read these read these feature files it's and then you can understand oh, okay i see exactly these user stories in, in plain english 
So that's, oh, so, that's super valuable. So you keep around the like plain English versions of these requirements then? So it's not just the tests that, that live on? Yeah, yeah. These are these are checked right into to the code base. Ah, okay. So with that said, like what, what Paige was mentioning, sometimes we can write the test directly as they're written. But but sometimes, I mean, it's it's been a constant learning process for both of us. Uh, I mean, for example, we had features where it was like, you know, you have a form and it's like, if the email's wrong, I see an email error. If the first name's wrong, I see a first name error. But I've learned like, okay, that should probably just be like in a unit test for like the, the form validation function, right? That doesn't probably need to be always like, you probably don't need to write every test in this in this given when then syntax. It's 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 kind of like a pick and choose and it's a constant like yeah it's 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 a discussion between between us and the the product team. So would this be more of a replacement for like EDE tests then? I mean I wouldn't imagine necessarily writing unit tests this way. I guess you could like more Yeah, you're you're right. That's that's where we found it's the easiest, right? Because end to end tests are much higher level anyway, which yeah, yeah works yeah. much better with like yeah, I press this button. When I go to the homepage, I find that my name says blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, I've never used this structure for actually implementing tests before, but I have used this when working with like product people before. And the other kind of nice thing I think about this format is, is it forces product people to give more specific requirements for things as well, <laughs> because I'm sure a lot of you can resonate with sometimes you'll get these requirements that are like vague or they have no yeah, um <laughs> or they're they're complicated the like <laughs> yeah or or they don't yeah exactly they don't consider things beyond and like this sort of forces you to say like okay well when this happens or this scenario when this happens what should happen right what happens with these account types what happens if they try to log in and they already have an account or it's an invalid email or the server is down or whatever, right? So it, it gives you like a clear just means of specifying requirements. Yeah. And then and then even better, like when when you do get that feedback, then you still have this these descriptions and these scenarios for those what the the unhappy path or when the server's down. Given the server's down, what happens? So <laughs> Yeah, I think I used this at a previous job and I remember there being like part of it was on, on us to actually go and build out like the regular expressions, like enable the terminology, like when I do X, I see blah. And like you kind of like we're writing regular expressions to match some of the English terminology of the test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that do you find yourself doing that a lot or do you, is that not not so much? What do you mean exactly? Or well, like there were expression matchers for the the terminology in the test, like because the terminology is written in kind of a plain English speaking style, right? Mm-hmm. When I go to the page, right? I ended up actually having to write like pattern matchers for some of that stuff. Yeah, I, it depends. I, I guess I'm I'm not sure what you mean exactly. So that's okay. Do you mean like the because the given or the, the, the you mean the body of the test itself, like what? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, that's. We we typically have done what we've been using a lot, especially in these end-to-end tests, is just like a test ID. If you're oh. if you're uh, aware with those of those, so yeah, this the the whole thing behind test IDs is a bit. It's considered sometimes anti-pattern, I guess. But what we realized is because it's also because the whole kind of startup environment features could change like two weeks from now <laughs> with different even you know different UI elements. 
different texts and, and everything like that. So some of the other matchers like get get by text or yeah, get by element, mm. they don't make so much sense, at least from from our, our opinion. So when you have this test ID, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, sometimes the test ID itself kind of gives way to what it is, like a button <laughs> yeah. or, or at least right. a, like a touchable. We're working in React Native, so a touchable oh, opacity. Yeah. So one question I have, you said you, you store a lot of these requirements in actually in the code base. So how do you handle like the location of those, especially for things? Cause occasionally you'll have requirements that aren't specific to say like a page, right? Like they'll have to be like, I do something on one page and then I go back to another and something should happen sort of thing. So do you have like app level requirements or like how, like how sort of pedantic do you get about that and how do you sort of handle that sort of thing? Yeah, that's, that's something we're, we're still working on. So far we've, we've, had like a set usually you have like five or six of these feature files per feature but then we've also like the engineering team has also we've kind of designed our own feature files still still to this which i could hear (laughs) i could hear a lot of people out there would be like what that's a waste of time but it's still going back to this idea that you have you have a catalog of of everything that that you you're testing in the catalog of of these features. So typically, for example, like these end-to-end tests, we've written ourselves in in the Gherkin syntax with which has these kind of cross you know multi-page stories and, and things like that. Yeah, it, it's it's difficult to it's difficult to balance that. Like some, <laughs> how should I explain? Because you can't ask like the product team; they can't write a feature file probably for a specific function in your code base, right? They don't know about it, so it's really uh, it just comes down to reading reading the features and saying, okay, where is this going to go? More than so, more often than not, it's probably going to go in, into an integration test or end to end test. But even then, you may even want to break down. Or, or talk with them, say, yeah, okay, let's let's take these scenarios and put them in a different test, or that actually belongs with a different feature, or or grouped with other features. So yeah, it's it's quite it's quite challenging, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's probably a, a horrible or, or a no no good answer there, but you know, because I think everybody struggles. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody struggles with this, right? Like, I think this is the just a common thread of software development, no matter what system you use, like where you put tests and where how you organize requirements and how you maintain them over time is, is a constant struggle. So if anybody had the magic bullet answer, we we'd all be just doing that. <laughs> yeah, so one, Chris, one thing I can say to that, at least is that we so we have like for our end to end test, which are supposed to be like the least, you know, the top of the pyramid, uh, least used and, and whatnot. What we do have there is like only the, we call them like business critical uh, stories, right? So like, can a user check out? Can they do this other like, typically like, so we have at InClub, we have, you can like create your own experience, of course, like you can put in the title description. These things we have as end-to-end tests because yeah, they're they're the most important. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of a unit tests and integration tests well <laughs> currently we're a bit more lax with those of course you should you should have all your tests passing before you go to to production but just in terms of the way they're designed a lot of a lot more of them are just written by us the software team and, and there's not maybe not a feature file yet for, for those so hey folks i'm here with jd from raycon you know, JD, we were talking just a second ago about empathy, and it seems like a common concept within the programming community. And yet, 
when we're building features for customers, a lot of times we call it done when it passes CI, deploys, and doesn't give us errors. And that really doesn't seem very empathetic when it comes to our customers because we're not looking at what they're doing. Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, until until your code actually hits the customer, um, you don't really know if it's any good. Uh, you know, everybody uses things in so many different weird and wonderful ways. You can only really debug in production. Um, yeah, I've been there. It's old, done. Yeah. It's not done. Oh, crap. It's not done. <laughs> I got to go fix it. Now it's done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when we see things like error reports flowing into Raygun, right. you know, a lot of the time it's things where you just kind of go, oh, that was a configuration that as a developer, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think could exist, but actually here's an example. And so it's connecting that code to customer and your development team through to real users and their experiences, which to your point, builds real empathy. And the best software teams care a lot about how their customers are experiencing their software. Right. It's kind of the feedback from the app, but it's also kind of this meta feedback is we do better, we tend to get less of this negative input back from our customer, which really does reflect empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think to your point earlier about CICD pipelines, like we've done an amazing amount of work as an industry to automate getting to prod really fast. But if you really want to go super fast, you need to close that loop with real-time feedback from prod back to the dev team. And that allows them to do things like fail forward and just do, you know really leverage that investment in CICD and, and it can turn into a real superpower. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to encourage you folks, yeah, set up your CICD, but then go sign up for Raygun. They'll actually give you a free trial and you can get it at raygun.com. So that actually leads into my next question. And you touched on this a little bit with the testing pyramid, but how much... How many integration and and unit tests would you say you have compared to your end-to-end tests? What's your percentage? Yeah, so we we have we're kind of weird. Uh, the middle middle of our pyramid is very fat, so the integration <laughs> level. And I think that comes a lot from like React itself. You can argue maybe a small component is like a unit test, but probably in reality you're you're going to need something some component from somewhere else to test your components and and that's the the biggest part of our our code base. I mean, we have the unit tests we do have are only for we have only I don't know a dozen or so and those are for our big like our most critical functions. Ideally, I mean, yeah, everybody wants the ideal world where you have 100% test coverage every function, every component. Well, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe we don't as software developers maybe we don't cuz we'll go crazy. But yeah, it, it's so we have I would say how would I Maybe like 15, 15% unit and end to end. So on the, on the two ends and then the rest is all, is all integration. Yeah. That's, that's just what we have currently. No, I think that makes sense. I'm also like, we've had conversations before. We're not, we're not on team 100% unit testing coverage here <laughs> no. at this, on this show. Uh, we're very no, much pragmatic. And I think it's even beyond pragmatic because if you have a goal of 100% test coverage, that, puts in sort of like weird incentives as well. Like you end up just writing tests just to do it versus whether it's actually providing value to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then they get these meaningless tests and if they break, you're not quite sure why, what are you testing? What was the intent here and all that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, no, no, I'm I'm happy to riff on this. I was going to ask the CIDCD question, but we'll get there. No, so, I was just going to add one final thought that, I mean, your unit tests are code too. You have to maintain it. Your requirements oh, yeah. are going to change. They're going to break. So your test should be doing something versus just being there. So you hit the hit the lines of code to make your your whatever code coverage tool happy. I think you should always have some rules like, 
if we do a certain type of change, we don't want a unit test to break. Like if we if we make a text change to a button, yeah. we don't want oh. a unit test or any kind of test to pass. That to sounds break. like chaos testing, I mean, Jack. <laughs> well, you know, but like if you if you like make a, a spelling fix, like that's you know, come on. Yeah, you know the little. I'm talking about the, like the little blurby text, like you know the whatever. things that snapshot testing. Please enter pick your up. credit card here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, basically just trying to ward people off of snapshot testing. Like, please yeah. don't do that. Yeah, well, but- okay. So, Chris, CI/CD. So, when do you just to kind of dig into the whole DevOps thing here? So, when do you run these tests, and how do you like? Is that a headless thing? Do you run it in CI/CD? All that. Uh, very soon, we will run them in CI/CD. <laughs> okay. But that that has a lot more to do with with me being the solo guy, and I I didn't the whole trouble with with Apple building has to be built on a Mac, and and oh, the only other right. option, although React Native, oh yeah, yeah yeah, and the tooling is the tooling is tough, and although Apple is releasing a cloud, but but yeah, I, I run the tests locally before before release or when we're we're getting quite close, but that's very soon to be added. Um, now that I have some help from from our new our new developer. Mm-hmm. But du- doubled the engineering team size for us. <laughs> but yeah, I, the, I I think the the typical the path is simply I like to throw in the the uh, type check that type checks empty. That's actually my first test even before unit, and then the unit test, then integration, and then end to end. When you say type check, you mean like TypeScript checking? Yes, the TSC. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Actually, we we can. It might be overkill. That might have been a bit of overkill from me but we wrote we converted ours into a unit check like we, we get the output from tsc and if it's zero lines the the unit test passes so <laughs> although I, I i did that and then i realized later i was like yeah i could just run the the bash command as part of the pipeline like yeah that, i think you could turn that like into a husky step too yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so chris another article you have that i i think is kind of interesting you make the case for uh, one function per file, which could be potentially controversial. I don't know how the other hosts feel, but why don't you start by by making the case for this? Why one function per file? Yeah, so yeah, I, I've worked with a lot of code bases. Typically, I think it's a React pattern, or it might be almost like a, a legacy React pattern is that you'd have, you know, you'd have a bunch of exports in one giant file called like, I think in my blog post, I use like a math as an example, right? So you could imagine yeah. add, subtract, divide. Okay, great. But then if you if you use them, first you import them and then you get this big import from one file. But the hardest or the the most confusing thing for me from that pattern is that when you're in this function file, you're looking all over the place and, and jumping around. And I, I don't know, I, I, I like if I open a file, it's just I can see, hopefully, if the function is, is well organized, should all fit right on the screen, right? And then I have it. And the, the the idea there and how it relates to testing is that when you do a unit test, you import this file. And that's basically, other than all your uh, test tooling, that should be the only file from your code base that you're you're importing. And then you're sure that, at least in, in a unit sense, this is like what's under test, like this single thing in my code base. Yeah, I'm trying to decide if I like it or not <laughs> in my head. I'm... I'm going to go with dislike. I mean, I can imagine at least maybe as a compromise, like one exposed function. Like, I definitely do things where I hide like internal stuff as like if somehow add in the math context were a complex thing to do or something. Well, Um, but you could argue you could make a function within a function. This is JavaScript. 
You can throw functions <laughs> anywhere. <Nothing's laughs> okay, sure, but don't do that in a React component. I've seen that before. People <laughs> making like subcomponents inside inside <laughs> of the declaration mm-hmm. of a function component. That is bad. Like, do not don't do that. that is, like, sure, you'll actually mess up React if you do that. But in math, if if your math if your function needed to yeah. do some like repetitive thing over and over again, you could do that. It, in my my argument was if you had this sort of math function you can organize them by the file name and the subfolder so, so like math slash add math slash subtract yep okay i may be i I'm, like I suspect i'm in a small minority <laughs> yeah it just feels like a lot of files to keep track of instead yeah. of just one that has all of your related <laughs> functions together <laughs> yeah i feel like now i'm just bringing up like a bringing up like a code base and looking around because <laughs> This is, I don't know, this like dread my code bases. At the same like time, that. like I can see though, like I I do even if I don't totally agree with one function per file, like definitely, like it's definitely an anti pattern to be building like these monstrosity files that I think yes, most of us have worked on, right? Like even if like we maybe can't get on board fully with slimming things down to one function, like. Once your file, like I've had, I've worked at places where we had rules that like once you reached a, a file, reached a certain number of lines, it would spit out some sort of warning, right? Like <laughs> you're, you're over like 300 lines in this file. Like, are you, are you sure you want to keep, <laughs> you wanna... are you sure you want to keep going? <laughs> <laughs> the RB dragons. I just refactored a, a GraphQL server file that I had. It was 2,400 lines. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my that God. Sounds right. <laughs> I, I remember what that was. I, I, I was 100% on Jeff, You might want to consider this one function per file. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You might right. laughs> but now I understand, like, why he says his his unit, his integration tests are so large. Because if, if an integration test is defined by a test, because integration tests are a weird definition anyway. But if it's defined by a test that includes more than one file, then yeah, no, man. Like if you have one function per file, like 90% of your tests are going to span across multiple files somehow. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Very controversial, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It may have been just my reaction to, to seeing, I've also worked with some of these giant files and I just said, nope, nope, just <laughs> keep it simple. One, one per file. That's my rule. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe we also have to refactor some of our, our functions. <laughs> I will give you that, that if you hit command P, and so you're now searching around on files in VS Code. Uh, different different IDs have different ones. But if you're doing Command P, then and you type in add, right? You'd get, if you have one fun function for file, you, you'd get it. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of cool. As long as you don't, oh, if, okay. Don't do the thing where you have like an add directory, like slash math, slash add, slash index. Where oh, no, no. Index is implementation and then index.spec or test. Oh, God, you no. kill me. And then you have a billion indexes. So, Chris, when you joined uh, the company that you're working for now, was it completely Greenfield where you just got to build this app from scratch and make all of the design decisions, the architecture decisions, what libraries were using, what stack? Or was there something that you inherited that you kind of had to take and build off of? It was it was definitely inherited. And it actually was a lot of uh, what Jack just mentioned, infinite index.js files. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. That's also that's part of why I went to that this one file, uh, one function per file pattern. But um, in the other the other struggle, at least from a from a uh, JavaScript or now TypeScript perspective, is that they had it was a weird mix of 
there was I was seeing TypeScript syntax with with JS file extensions and and everything in between. <laughs> and actually, that's that's something nice we've we've achieved very recently is there's no more TypeScript errors in the entire code base. It took a long time, but we finally gotten there, and, and now it's great because you can, for example, like we just upgraded a package, then you just run TSC and you say, ah, okay, they changed, you know. Of course, you read the documentation, but you find immediately where in the code base that, yeah. that the changes are. And, and so oh, these types don't work here. Before, when, when we had 500 TypeScript errors anyway, they were just lost in a sea of like confusion. <laughs> and you don't know. Yeah, you don't know where there's like errors hiding. So yeah, it was it was a big takeover. And, and of course, there were also no tests uh, written. And I, I still think tests in general are kind of I might be biased from my own experience. It was one of the last things that I kind of learned and I'm still learning as a software engineer. But I think it's a lot of because we all like to when we test, we'd like to run just run the app or click around and use it ourselves. Right. That's like it's kind of the natural your natural way to go. But but I really see now the the value of having automated tests and it gives you security and and, or not not security, but a, a better feeling about what you're shipping. So just another layer, layer of, uh, yeah, of, of, uh, of confidence. Like a peace of mind. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. And you should always get down to zero warnings and zero, well, zero errors for sure, but zero warnings. <laughs> Cause otherwise, yeah, it's just, it's white noise and people just ignore it after a while. Oh, that, you know, you know, and then, yeah, and you're in hell. Yeah. Oh, no, nobody's touched that function because if if we touch it or change it, oh, you know, right. nobody knows what happens. Yeah. That's what test can be cleaned up. Yeah. So, Chris, do you have any other uh, tips or from being like a solo developer starting on like a, a big project like this? Do you have like any any other thoughts or people things people might find interesting from going just going through that experience i think i think the best thing you can do is just to i want to say write one function per file but no really (laughs) it's it's, uh the best thing you can do is is try and be organized or write write code that's you know thinking about this like this file length limit that's almost true especially when you work alone you can't really afford to have these big complex functions and, and components and you even on a bigger team you probably shouldn't so I, I think my number one advice would be to try and write code that's like small and and manage in small manageable parts that that work together yeah i think i can definitely see that because if i'm left to myself if i'm coding by myself i definitely have a different mode right where i'm i'm far more willing to just go just it's the wild west right i have my giant function i know what it does it does what it needs to do right and i don't think about it too much whereas if i'm working on a team i'll approach it like well okay page is going to see this and have to figure out what it's going to do and how that's going to work so i might think about it a little bit more so i think i i would struggle in that role just because i i don't know i my my apps would fall apart at scale because i would just be lazy about it yeah i mean i i had to fight the same thing too right but but the hope i kept in mind i was like yeah soon soon there will be someone on the team you know this <laughs> you know with the vision that that we're growing i mean we are we are growing slowly too but but the vision that more people more engineers will be writing on this code base soon yeah so yeah every time i'm asked to evaluate a code base and it's a single coder on it 
and it's been there for a year or so, over a year, I, I'm like, oh, watch no, out. That's not going to be, that's going to be some, <laughs> weird, some weird stuff going on in there. For sure. Yeah. Single engineer or also like contractor written. That's, that's oh, been the other red flag for me oh, too. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Just because when someone's not accountable to the team, right? They just, just somebody just has to see something working to sign off on it. Uh, mm-hmm. Then things can often get hairy. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I would be a strong fan of the single function per file if I was a contractor and getting paid per file. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And one constant per file. <laughs> awesome. Well, Chris, have we, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything we've missed? Like any articles you've covered, any topics that, that we haven't got into that you, you wanted to discuss at all? I think one thing I, I was going to mention b- before we got into the, the whole CI, CD and the function profile discussion, a huge thing that we've learned, or it's quite simple really is like, because we, we're, you know, we're talking about all these tests, you have all the, your tests, they pass great. But most often, of course, bugs are either like super weird or user reported that nobody expect or saw. And one of the best uh, kind of patterns that we've done is like, okay, we get a critical bug or either a very weird bug or, or something. Then you write a test specifically against that bug. It Maybe it wasn't in your feature files, wasn't in your specifications, but write a test against that bug or fix the bug, of course, and then write a test against it to kind of make sure that it, it doesn't come back right that it does there's yeah, no regret percent agree on that one for sure so yeah that's one thing i i forgot to mention but uh, that's i mean even that might even be if you want to if you work somewhere and maybe your organization has no tests yet that may be one of the first places to go or the easiest way to start writing tests yeah it's also very satisfying if you can get it like get it to show up as red and then you implement a fix and then feel confident that like get to see it switch over it's very it's a very satisfying feeling too exactly yeah Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Cool. Well, it's been awesome chatting with you. I think we can move on to our picks. So it's where we just pick Something, movies, TV show, music. We're still waiting for somebody to have a strong musical take. <laughs> we do a lot of TV shows. But Jack, do you want to kick us off today? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? My daughter and I just finished up the UCS Millennium Falcon build, which is I like. It's a Lego build. It's just ginormously huge. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I think, 7,000 parts and 1,500 nice. pages. Oh, my God. Epic. Yeah. How, how long did that take? We're kind of old hands at the Lego thing, so it took us three and a half, four days. Um, <laughs> wow! But it was, you know, woo! It was. Uh, we basically traded off on it, and it was fun, you know. So if you're into that sort of thing, uh, it's a it's a fun build. I will say that it, if you are into movie speak, it has a lot of what's called greebles, 
which are just basically little things that you put on something to make it visually interesting. So there's just a lot of stuff on there. Just like it doesn't, it's not actually not functional. It's just kind of stuck on. And it's just <laughs> a lot of that. Like you build up a structural piece and then it's like a bunch of like just add a lot of little bits. Kind of yeah. It's fun. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Paige, what picks do you have? My pick for this week is going to continue on the kitchen tools train. So this <laughs> one is a plastic wrap dispenser. So normally when you get plastic wrap, it comes in those those cardboard boxes. The little cutter is not very good if there is a cutter at all or just rips and tears and stuff. So we bought a bamboo wooden food dispenser. It comes with a really nice little top cutter and it works like a charm. It's really heavy, so you can just pull the wrap. It doesn't slide across the table after you. The cutter works really well. So I would definitely recommend that if you have $20 to spend, get one of these things, and you'll probably never need another one. <laughs> I've probably seen one of these behind, behind a sushi bar or something when they're, like, making the rolls. Could yeah. Be. Kind of thing, yeah. Awesome. My pick this week is going to be a weird one, of kind of a very specific one, but... I'm going to pick Amazon Go, which I don't know if, if any of you have went to one of these stores before, but you, you'd have to be in either Seattle, Chicago, or New York. So that's why it's a very specific pick. But there are these stores by Amazon where their, their core tech is there's no checkout. You just grab, you at the door, you go in, there's these turnstiles, and you scan your phone in the Amazon app so it knows who you are. You get, grab whatever you're going to buy, and then you just leave. And the system there is smart enough. There's cameras. The entire ceiling is covered with these cameras. And you just get a notification on your phone a few minutes after you walk out with just a receipt of what you bought. And I'm picking it just because if, if you're in the area, it's just fascinating to do because it's, it's just such a weird experience, right? Like you feel very, very strange. Like you feel like you're actually <laughs> committing a crime when you walk out of the place. And for me, too, we went with the whole family. So you go in as a group. And I was just amazed at the technology because we said we had two 11 year old kids. Right. So, of course, they're just grabbing things off the shelves, putting it on and off, you know, walking around, whatever. And sure enough, we bought like five or six things between the four of us. And it perfectly knew exactly what we bought, <laughs> charged us perfectly. And I was just kind of amazed by it. So if you're ever in the area, for, if you're a listener in one of those those three areas, it's it's worth doing once just to experience it. Is there any security there? Can you just like just walk out? You literally walk out. There was there was not another there was not a human employee in the store. There there might be somebody like in the back or something for all I know, but we did not see in a single employee. It's kind of crazy. Well, that's trusting. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So Chris, what picks do you have? I guess I'll do I'll do two books. The first, I guess, is is quite relevant. It's uh We've, we've all read it on the team. It's The Lean Startup by Eric, I think, Rice, you pronounce it, his last name. It's quite interesting. And yeah, it, there's a lot of good stuff packed in there. So yeah, that, that's my first. And then I guess, well, the, the second is a series of books, the Foundation Series by Isaac mm. Asimov. I guess it's it's made a kind of a resurgence re- recently because I think Apple did a series on it or something. But yeah, the books, yeah, Apple did it. The books are awesome. I recommend the, to read the books first i'm surprised apple did it because it seems like an unfilmable show and it kind of was actually (laughs) (laughs) is it uh science fiction oh yeah okay i will have to check this out (laughs) cool well chris last question for you if people want to follow you what so what's the best place to to do that sort of thing 
I guess the, the easiest is just my blog. It's, uh, it's chrisfrew.in. And I think from there you can find, find me anywhere. I, I am trying to get back to making YouTube videos, but I've been <laughs> extremely busy with, with the startup, but I hope That's this tough, fall. Man. Yeah. Feel the pain. So cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's a lot of fun to chat. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It's really fun. Cool. And until next week, everybody. See you All then. right. See you then. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.